Chapter 16 of France and England in North America. Part 3. La Salle. Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. La Salle. Discovery of the Great West by Francis Pacman, Jr. Chapter 16. 1680. Tonti and the Iroquois. When La Salle set out on his rugged journey to Fort Frontenac, he left, as we have seen, fifteen men at Fort Crevcour, smiths, ship carpenters, house rights, and soldiers, besides his servant, L'Esperance, and the two friars, Mambre and Rebord. Most of the men were ripe for mutiny. They had no interest in the enterprise, and no love for its chief. They were disgusted with the present, and terrified at the future. La Salle, too, was for the most part a stern commander, impenetrable and cold, and when he tried to soothe, conciliate, and encourage, his success rarely answered to the excellence of his rhetoric. He could always, however, inspire respect, if not love, but now the restraint of his presence was removed. He had not been long absent when a firebrand was thrown into the midst of the discontented and restless crew. It may be remembered that La Salle had met two of his men, La Chapelle and Leblanc, at his fort on the St. Joseph, and ordered them to rejoin Tonti. Unfortunately, they obeyed. On arriving, they told their comrades that the griffin was lost, that Fort Frontenac was seized by the creditors of La Salle, that he was ruined past recovery, and that they, the men, would never receive their pay. Their wages were in arrears for more than two years, and indeed it would have been folly to pay them before their return to the settlements, as to do so would have been a temptation to desert. Now, however, the effect on their minds was still worse, believing, as many of them did, that they would never be paid at all. La Chapelle and his companions had brought a letter from La Salle to Tanti, directing him to examine and fortify the cliff so often mentioned, which overhung the river above the great Illinois valley. Tonti, accordingly, set out on his errand with some of the men. In his absence, the malcontents destroyed the fort, stole powder, lead, furs, and provisions, and deserted, after writing on the side of the unfinished vessel the words seen by La Salle, Nous sommes tous sauvages. The brave young Sieur de Boironde and the servant L'Esperance hastened to carry the news to Tanti, who at once dispatched four of those with him by two different routes to inform La Salle of the disaster. Besides the two just named, there now remained with him only one hired man and the Recollet friars. With this feeble band he was left among a horde of treacherous savages who had been taught to regard him as a secret enemy. Resolved, apparently, to disarm their jealousy by a show of confidence, he took up his abode in the midst of them, making his quarters in the great village, whither, as spring opened, its inhabitants returned, to the number, according to Mambre, of seven or eight thousand. Hither he conveyed the forge and such tools as he could recover, and here he hoped to maintain himself till La Salle should reappear. The spring and the summer were past, and he looked anxiously for his coming unconscious that a storm was gathering in the east, soon to burst with devastation over the fertile wilderness of the Illinois. I have recounted the ferocious triumphs of the Iroquois in another volume, 
throughout a wide semicircle around their cantons they had made the forest a solitude destroyed the hurons exterminated the neutrals and the eries reduced the formidable andastes to helpless insignificance swept the borders of the st lawrence with fire spread terror and desolation among the algonquins of canada and now tired of peace they were seeking to borrow their own savage metaphor new nations to devour yet it was not alone their homicidal fury that now impelled them to another war strange as it may seem this war was in no small measure one of commercial advantage they had long traded with the dutch and english of new york who gave them in exchange for their furs the guns ammunition knives hatchets kettles beads and brandy which had become indispensable to them game was scarce in their country they must seek their beaver and other skins in the vacant territories of the tribes they had destroyed but this did not content them the french of canada were seeking to secure a monopoly of the furs of the north and west and of late the enterprises of la salle on the tributaries of the mississippi had especially roused the jealousy of the iroquois fomented moreover by dutch and english traders these crafty savages would fain reduce all these regions to subjection and draw thence an exhaustless supply of furs to be bartered for english goods with the traders of albany they turned their eyes first towards the illinois the most important as well as one of the most accessible of the western algonquin tribes and among la salle's enemies were some in whom jealousy of a hated rival could so far override all the best interests of the colony that they did not scruple to urge on the iroquois to an invasion which they hoped would prove his ruin the chiefs convened war was decreed the war dance was danced the war song sung and five hundred warriors began their march in their path lay the town of the miamis neighbors and kindreds of the illinois it was always their policy to divide and conquer and these forest machiavels had intrigued so well among the miamis working craftily on their jealousy that they induced them to join in the invasion though there is every reason to believe that they had marked these infatuated allies as their next victims go to the banks of the illinois where it flows by the village of utica and stand on the meadow that borders it on the north in front glides the river a musket shot in width and from the farther bank rises with gradual slope a range of wooded hills that hide from sight the vast prairie behind them a mile or more on your left these gentile acclivities end abruptly in the lofty front of the great cliff called by the french the rock of st louis looking boldly out from the forest that environ it and three miles distant on your right you discern a gap in the steep bluffs that here bound the valley marking the mouth of the river vermilion called aramoni by the french now stand in fancy on the same spot in the early autumn of the year sixteen eighty you are in the midst of the great town of the illinois hundreds of mat-covered lodges and thousands of congregated savages enter one of their dwellings they will not think you an intruder some friendly squaw will lay a mat for you by the fire you may seat yourself upon it smoke your pipe and study the lodge and its inmates by the light that streams through the holes at the top three or four fires smoke and smolder on the ground down the middle of the long arched structure and as to each fire there are two families the place is somewhat crowded when all are present but now there is breathing room for many are in the fields a squaw sits weaving a mat of rushes 
a warrior naked except his moccasins and tattooed with fantastic devices binds a stone arrowhead to its shaft with the fresh sinews of a buffalo some lie asleep some sit steering in vacancy some are eating some are squatted in lazy chat around a fire the smoke brings water to your eyes the fleas annoy you small unkempt children naked as young puppies crawl about your knees and will not be repelled you have seen enough you rise and go out again into the sunlight it is if not a peaceful at least a languid scene a few voices break the stillness mingled with the joyous chirping of crickets from the grass young men lie flat on their faces basking in the sun a group of their elders are smoking around a buffalo skin on which they have just been playing a game of chance with cherry stones a lover and his mistress perhaps sit together under a shed of bark without uttering a word not far off is the graveyard where lie the dead of the village some buried in the earth some wrapped in skins and laid aloft on scaffolds above the reach of wolves in the cornfields around you you see squaws at their labor and children driving off intruding birds and your eye ranges over the meadows beyond spangled with the yellow blossom of the resin weed and the rudbickia or over the bordering hills still green with the foliage of summer this or something like it one may safely affirm was the aspect of the illinois village at noon of the tenth of september in a hut apart from the rest you would probably have found the frenchmen among them was a man not strong in person and disabled moreover by the loss of a hand yet in this den of barbarism betraying the language and bearing of one formed in the most polished civilization of europe this was henri de tante the others were young boisrande the servant l'esperance and a parisian youth named etienne renault the friars mambre and ribord were not in the village but at a hut a league distant whither they had gone to make a retreat for prayer and meditation their missionary labors had not been fruitful they had made no converts and were in despair at the intractable character of the objects of their zeal as for the other frenchmen time doubtless hung heavy on their hands for nothing can surpass the vacant monotony of an indian town when there is neither hunting nor war nor feasts nor dances nor gambling to beguile the lagging hours suddenly the village was wakened from its lethargy as by the crash of a thunderbolt a shawnee lately here on a visit had left his illinois friends to return home he now reappeared crossing the river in hot haste with the announcement that he had met on his way an army of iroquois approaching to attack them all was panic and confusion the lodges disgorged their frightened inmates women and children screamed startled warriors snatched their weapons there were less than five hundred of them for the greater part of the young men had gone to war a crowd of excited savages thronged about tanti and his frenchmen already objects of their suspicion charging them with furious gesticulation with having stirred up their enemies to invade them tanti defended himself in broken illinois but the naked mob were but half convinced they seized the forge and tools and flung them into the river with all the goods that had been saved from the deserters then distrusting their power to defend themselves they manned the wooden canoe which lay in multitudes by the bank 
embarked their women and children and paddled down the stream of that island of dry land in the midst of marshes which la salle afterwards found filled with their deserted huts sixty warriors remained here to guard them and the rest returned to the village all night long fires blazed along the shore the excited warriors greased their bodies painted their faces befeathered their heads sang their war songs danced stamped yelled and brandished their hatchets to work up their courage to face the crisis the morning came and with it came the iroquois young warriors had gone out as scouts and now they returned they had seen the enemy in the line of forest that bordered the river aromoni or vermilion and stealthily reconnoitred them they were very numerous and armed for the most part with guns pistols and swords some had bucklers of wood or rawhide and some wore those corselets of tough twigs interwoven with cordage which their fathers had used when firearms were unknown the scouts added more for they declared that they had seen a jesuit among the iroquois nay that la salle himself was there whence it must follow that tonti and his men were enemies and traitors the supposed jesuit was but an iroquois chief arrayed in a black hat doublet and stockings while another equipped after a somewhat similar fashion passed in the distance for la salle but the illinois were furious tonti's life hung by a hair a crowd of savages surrounded him mad with rage and terror he had come lately from europe and knew little of indians but as the friar mambre says of him he was full of intelligence and courage and when they heard him declare that he and his frenchmen would go with them to fight the iroquois their threats grew less clamorous and their eyes glittered with a less deadly lustre whooping and screeching they ran to their canoes crossed the river climbed the woody hill and swarmed down upon the plain beyond about a hundred of them had guns the rest were armed with bows and arrows they were now face to face with the enemy who had emerged from the woods of the vermilion and were advancing on the open prairie with unwanted spirit for their repute as warriors was by no means high the illinois began after their fashion to charge that is they leaped yelled and shot off bullets and arrows advancing as they did so while the iroquois replied with gymnastics no less agile and howling no less terrific mingled with the rapid clatter of their guns tonti saw that it would go hard with his allies it was of the last moment to stop the fight if possible the iroquois were or professed to be at peace with the french and taking counsel of his courage he resolved on an attempt to mediate which may well be called a desperate one he laid aside his gun took in his hand a wampum belt as a flag of truce and walked forward to meet the savage multitude attended by boironde another frenchman and a young illinois who had the hardihood to accompany him the guns of the iroquois still flashed thick and fast some of them were aimed at him on which he sent back the two frenchmen and the illinois and advanced alone holding out the wampum belt a moment more and he was among the infuriated warriors it was a frightful spectacle the contorted forms bounding crouching twisting to deal or dodge the shot the small keen eyes that shone like an angry snake's the parted lips peeling their fiendish yells the painted features writhing with fear and fury and every passion of an indian fight man wolf and devil 
all in one. With his swarthy complexion and his half-savage dress, they thought he was an Indian, and thronged about him, glaring murder. A young warrior stabbed at his heart with a knife, but the point glanced aside against a rib, inflicting only a deep gash. A chief called out that, as his ears were not pierced, he must be a Frenchman. On this, some of them tried to stop the bleeding, and led him to the rear, where an angry parley ensued, while the yells and firing still resounded in the front. Tanti, breathless and bleeding at the mouth with the force of the blow he had received, found words to declare that the Illinois were under the protection of the king and the governor of Canada, and to demand that they should be left in peace. A young Iroquois snatched Tanti's hat, placed it on the end of his gun, and displayed it to the Illinois, who, thereupon, thinking he was killed, renewed the fight, and the firing in front clattered more angrily than before. A warrior ran in, crying out that the Iroquois were given ground, and that there were Frenchmen among the Illinois, who fired at them. On this, the clamor around Tanti was redoubled. Some wished to kill him at once, others resisted. I was never, he writes, in such perplexity, for at that moment there was an Iroquois behind me with a knife in his hand, lifting my hair as if he were going to scalp me. I thought it was all over with me, and that my best hope was that they would knock me in the head instead of burning me, as I believed they would do. In fact, a Seneca chief demanded that he should be burned, while an Onondaga chief, a friend of La Salle, was for setting him free. The dispute grew fierce and hot. Tanti told them that the Illinois were twelve hundred strong and that sixty Frenchmen were at the village, ready to back them. This invention, though not fully believed, had no little effect. The friendly Onondaga carried his point, and the Iroquois, having failed to surprise their enemies, as they had hoped, now saw an opportunity to delude them by a truce. They sent back Tanti with a belt of peace. He held it aloft inside of the Illinois, chiefs and old warriors ran to stop the fight the yells and the firing ceased and tanti like one waked from a hideous nightmare dizzy almost fainting with a loss of blood staggered across the intervening prairie to rejoin his friends he was met by the two friars rebord and mambre who in their secluded hut a league from the village had but lately heard of what was passing and who now with benedictions and thanksgiving ran to embrace him as a man escaped from the jaws of death. The Illinois now withdrew, re-embarking in their canoes and crossing again to their lodges, but scarcely had they reached them when the enemies appeared at the edge of the forest on the opposite bank. Many found means to cross and, under the pretext of seeking for provisions, began to hover in bands about the skirts of the town, constantly increasing in numbers. Had the Illinois dared to remain, a massacre would doubtless have ensued, but they knew their foe too well, set fire to their lodges, embarked in haste, and paddled down the stream to rejoin their women and children at the sanctuary among the morasses. The whole body of the Iroquois now crossed the river, took possession of the abandoned town, building for themselves a rude redoubt or fort of the trunks of trees and of the posts and poles forming the framework of the lodges which escaped the fire here they ensconced themselves and finished the work of havoc at their leisure tanti and his companions still occupied their hut but the iroquois becoming suspicious of them forced them to remove to the fort crowded as it was with the savage crew 
On the second day, there was an alarm. The Illinois appeared in numbers on the low hills, half a mile behind the town, and the Iroquois, who had felt their courage, and who had been told by Tonti that they were twice as numerous as themselves, showed symptoms of no little uneasiness. They proposed that he should act as a mediator, to which he gladly assented, and crossed the meadow toward the Illinois, accompanied by Mambre, and by an Iroquois, who was sent as a hostage. The Illinois hailed the overtures with delight, gave the ambassadors some refreshment which they sorely needed, and sent back with them a young man of their nation as a hostage on their part. This indiscreet youth nearly proved the ruin of the negotiation, for he was no sooner among the Iroquois than he showed such an eagerness to close the treaty, made such promises, professed such gratitude and betrayed so rashly the numerical weakness of the illinois that he revived all the insolence of the invaders they turned furiously upon tonti and charged him with having robbed them of the glory and the spoils of victory where are all your illinois warriors and where are the sixty frenchmen that you said were among them it needed all tonti's tact and coolness to extricate himself from this new danger the treaty was at length concluded, but scarcely was it made when the Iroquois prepared to break it, and set about constructing canoes of elm bark, in which to attack the Illinois women and children in their island sanctuary. Tonti warned his allies that the pretended peace was but a snare for their destruction. The Iroquois, on their part, grew hourly more jealous of him, and would certainly have killed him had it not been their policy to keep the peace with Frontenac and the French several days after they summoned him and mambre to a council six packs of beaver skins were brought in and the savage orator presented them to tante in turn explaining their meaning as he did so the first two were to declare that the children of count frontenac that is the illinois should not be eaten the next was a plaster to heal tante's wound the next was oil, wherewith to anoint him and Mambre, that they might not be fatigued in travelling. The next proclaimed that the sun was bright, and the sixth and last required them to decamp and go home. Tonti thanked them for their gifts, but demanded when they themselves meant to go and leave the Illinois in peace. At this the conclave grew angry, and despite their late pledge, some of them said that before they went they would eat Illinois flesh tonti instantly kicked away the packs of beaver skins the indian symbol of the scornful rejection of a proposal telling them that since they meant to eat the governor's children he would have none of their presence the chiefs in a rage rose and drove him from the lodge the french withdrew to their hut where they stood all night on the watch expecting an attack and resolved to sell their lives dearly at daybreak the chiefs ordered them to be gone tonti with admirable fidelity and courage had done all in the power of man to protect the allies of canada against their ferocious assailants and he thought it unwise to persist further in a course which could lead to no good and which would probably end in the destruction of the whole party he embarked in a leaky canoe with mambre rebord boironde and the remaining two men and began to ascend the river after paddling about five leagues they landed to dry their baggage and repair their crazy vessel. When Father Reboard, Beverly in hand, strolled across the sunny meadows for an hour of meditation among the neighboring groves. Evening approached, and he did not return. 
tanti with one of his men went to look for him and following his tracks presently discovered those of a band of indians who had apparently seized or murdered him still they did not despair they fired their guns to guide him should he still be alive built a huge fire by the bank and then crossing the river lay watching it from the other side at midnight they saw the figure of a man hovering around the blaze then many more appeared but reboard was not among them in truth a band of kickapoos enemies of the iroquois about whose camp they had been prowling in quest of scalps had met and wantonly murdered the inoffensive old man they carried his scalp to their village and danced round it in triumph pretending to have taken it from an enemy thus in his sixty-fifth year the only heir of a wealthy burgundian house perished under the war clubs of the savages for whose salvation he had renounced station ease and affluence meanwhile a hideous scene was enacted at the ruined village of the illinois their savage foes balked of a living prey wrecked their fury on the dead they dug up the graves they threw down the scaffolds some of the bodies they burned some they threw to the dogs some it is affirmed they ate placing the skulls on stakes as trophies they turned to pursue the illinois who when the french withdrew had abandoned their asylum and retreated down the river the iroquois still it seems in awe of them followed them along the opposite bank each night encamping face to face with them and thus the adverse band moved slowly southward till they were near the mouth of the river hitherto the compact array of the illinois had held their enemies in check but now suffering from hunger and lulled into security by the assurances of the iroquois that their object was not to destroy them but only to drive them from the country they rashly separated into several tribes some descended the mississippi some more prudent crossed to the western side one of their principal tribes the tamaroas more credulous than the rest had the fatuity to remain near the mouth of the illinois where they were speedily assailed by all the force of the iroquois the men fled and very few of them were killed but the women and children were captured to the number it is said of seven hundred then followed the scene of torture of which some two weeks later la salle saw the revolting traces sated at length with horrors the conquerors withdrew leading with them a host of captives and exulting in their triumphs over women children and the dead after the death of father reboard tanti and his companions remained searching for him till noon of the next day and then in despair of again seeing him resumed their journey they ascended the river leaving no token of their passage at the junction of its northern and southern branches for food they gathered acorns and dug roots in the meadows their canoe proved utterly worthless and feeble as they were they set out on foot for lake michigan Boirande wandered off and was lost he had dropped the flint of his gun and he had no bullets but he cut a pewter porringer into slugs with which he shot wild turkeys by discharging his piece with a firebrand and after several days he had the good fortune to rejoin the party their object was to reach the potawatomies of green bay had they aimed at mckillimackinac they would have found an asylum with la forest at the fort of the st joseph but unhappily they passed westward of that post and by way of chicago followed the borders of lake michigan northward the cold was intense and it was no easy task to grub up wild onions from the frozen ground to save themselves from starving 
Tante fell ill of a fever and a swelling of the limbs, which disabled him from traveling, and hence ensued a long delay. At length they neared Green Bay, where they would have starved had they not gleaned a few ears of corn and frozen squashes in the fields of an empty Indian town. This enabled them to reach the bay, and having patched an old canoe which they had the good luck to find, they embarked in it. Whereupon, says Tanti, there rose a northwest wind which lasted five days with driving snow we consumed all our food and not knowing what to do next we resolved to go back to the deserted town and die by a warm fire in one of the wigwams on our way we saw a smoke but our joy was short for when we reached the fire we found nobody there we spent the night by it and before morning the bay froze we tried to break away for our canoe through the ice but could not and therefore we determined to stay there another night and make moccasins in order to reach the town we made some out of father gabriel's cloak i was angry with etienne renault for not finishing his but he excused himself on account of illness because he had a great oppression of the stomach caused by eating a piece of an indian shield of rawhide which he could not digest his delay proved our salvation for the next day December 4th, as I was urging him to finish the moccasins, and he was still excusing himself on the score of his malady, a party of Kiskakan Ottawas, who were on their way to the Patawatamis, saw the smoke of our fire and came to us. We gave them such a welcome as was never seen before. They took us into their canoes and carried us to an Indian village only two leagues off there we found five frenchmen who received us kindly and all the indians seemed to take pleasure in sending us food so that after thirty-four days of starvation we found our famine turned to abundance this hospitable village belonged to the Potawatomis and was under the sway of the chief who had befriended la salle the year before and who was wont to say that he knew but three great captains in the world frontenac la salle and himself the illinois town the site of the great illinois town this has not till now been determined though there has been various conjectures concerning it from a study of the contemporary documents and maps i became satisfied first that the branch of the river illinois called the big vermilion was the aramoni of the french explorers and secondly that the cliff called star rock was that known to the french as le rocher or the rock of st louis if i was right in this conclusion then the position of the great village was established and there is abundant proof that it was on the north side of the river above the aramoni and below la rochere i accordingly went to the village of utica which as i judged by the map was very near the point in question and mounted to the top of one of the hills immediately behind it whence i could see the valley of the illinois for miles bounded on the farther side by a range of hills in some parts rocky and precipitous and in others covered with forests far on the right was a gap in these hills through which the big vermilion flowed to join the illinois and somewhat toward the left at a distance of a mile and a half was a huge cliff rising perpendicularly from the opposite margin of the river this I assumed to be Le Rocher of the French, though from where I stood I was unable to discern the distinctive features which I was prepared to find in it. In every other respect, the scene before me was precisely what I had expected to see. There was a meadow on the hither side of the river, 
on which stood a farmhouse and this as it seemed to me by its relations with surrounding objects might be supposed to stand in the midst of the space once occupied by the illinois town on the way down from the hill i met mr james clark the principal inhabitant of utica and one of the earliest settlers of this region i accosted him told him my objects and requested a half hour's conversation with him at his leisure he seemed interested in the inquiry and said he would visit me early in the evening at the inn where accordingly he soon appeared the conversation took place in the porch where a number of farmers and others were gathered i asked mr clark if any indian remains were found in the neighborhood yes he replied plenty of them i then inquired if there was any spot where they were more numerous than elsewhere yes he answered again pointing toward the farmhouse on the meadow on my farm down yonder by the river my tenant ploughs up teeth and bones by the peck every spring besides arrowheads beads stone hatchets and other things of that sort i replied that this was precisely what i had expected as i had been led to believe that the principal town of the illinois indians once covered that very spot if i added i am right in this belief the great rock beyond the river is the one which the first explorers occupied as a fort and i can describe it to you from their accounts of it though i have never seen it except from the top of the hill where the trees on and around it prevented me from seeing any part but the front the men present now gathered around to listen the rock i continued is nearly a hundred and fifty feet high and rises directly from the water the front of two sides are perpendicular and inaccessible but there is one place where it is possible for a man to climb up though with difficulty the top is large enough and level enough for houses and fortifications here several of the men exclaimed that's just it you've hit it exactly i then asked if there was any other rock on that side of the river which could answer to the description they all agreed that there was no such rock on either side along the whole length of the river i then said if the indian town was in the place where i suppose it to have been i can tell you the nature of the country which lies behind the hills on the farther side of the river though i know nothing about it except what i have learned from writings nearly two centuries old from the top of the hills you look out upon a great prairie region as far as you can see except that it is crossed by a belt of woods following the course of a stream which enters the main river a few miles below you are exactly right again replied mr clark we call that belt of timber the vermilion woods and the stream is the big vermilion then i said the big vermilion is the river which the french call the aramoni starved rock is the same on which they built a fort called st louis in the year sixteen eighty two and your farm is on the side of the great town of the illinois i spent the next day in examining these localities and was fully confirmed in my conclusions mr clark's tenant showed me the spot where the human bones were ploughed up it was no doubt the graveyard violated by the iroquois the illinois returned to the village after their defeat and long continued to occupy it the scattered bones were probably collected and restored to their place of burial End of chapter sixteen